So it is Mother's Day, and I just want to say Happy Mother's Day to my mom, who's probably watching from California. She lives there on purpose and uh, oftentimes watches our, our services, and I've missed my mom. I was able this last week to watch my daughter-in-law be a mom, and that's a pretty fun experience, watching my kid's parent. I've shared with you before, just yesterday, I remember my son not acting in ways that were very um, parent-like, and all of a sudden he's responsible for another human. My daughter-in-law is a phenomenal mom. And um, I had the chance this last uh, week to go solo and uh, with my little granddaughter, Emery. She's four and a half months old, beautiful little granddaughter. Um, I, I love her. I mean, she has me wrapped around her littlest finger, but I'm also a little bit scared of her, to be perfectly frank with you. And, and so one day, Joy, she was getting her hair done last week, and Eden, my daughter-in-law, owns a hair salon, and I'm watching Emery, and I'm watching her in the hair salon, which just involves turning her around where she faces out and walking her back and forth and not stopping, and you know, as long as you do that, it's fine. And um, Emery, the reason I'm a little scared of her is because she has four gears. And uh, the first gear, when she gets angry, is not a big deal. It's like the kind of gear she uses when you're watching the wrong TV show. She likes Hay Bear. Any of you parents with little ones, you know Hay Bear? Anybody? No, you don't know, nobody knows Hay Bear? YouTube it. It's awesome. Dancing veggies, but cooler than veggie tails. Uh, when, when Emery watches, I have the wrong Hay Bear on, she'll give me level one. Eh. That's it. And so I'm like, all right, fair warning. Eh. Good time to turn the channel. Then if she gets a little more upset at you, she goes to level two, which is a eh, eh, like that. And that's like, you're really not getting it. You're new at this, being a grandpa and you need to straighten up. She has a level three, which is a cry. But then she has a level four, which is like a chainsaw. When you make her mad, she starts and holds her breath. And then, I mean, it's as loud as it can be. And it just stresses you out. You wonder, is she gonna explode? Is she okay? And so my daughter-in-law, Eden, I'm walking her at the hair salon and I'm doing my thing. And she goes, you wanna take her home? And she'd probably like to watch some TV and hang out. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm here at the salon next to her mom and grandma, you know. I felt like I was independent being 30 feet away. And she goes, no, you should take her. Have some grandpa and granddaughter bonding time. One thing you need to know is I don't change diapers. Um, I uh, leave that to my wife, who's really good at it. And I leave that to, to Eden. I changed my boys' diapers back in the day. Once they grew up, I didn't have to change any more diapers. That's just the way it was. And so I told Eden, I said, I'm sorry, I can't go more than five minutes away. If we have a blowout, you have to you know, come and take care of it. And she said, oh, it's okay. You know, our house is only five minutes away. So I just, I, I, okay, let's do it. So I went on my solo voyage with Emery. Now I love her, I love her, just a little scared of her. And so I strapped her in all her gear and grabbed her car seat, had all this stuff. It's like you're moving every time you go anywhere with an infant. Took her home, got her out of the car seat, walked in, stuck her in a little, you know, on the floor and we're playing together, watching TV. We had so much fun together for about the 25 minutes that I had my solo mission. Just Emery, just me. And I remember my attention, 100% of my attention was focused on this little four and a half month old girl. I watched every breath, every move. I wanted to make her happy. I did not want her to be upset. And it was just kind of fun to just be zoned in like that, caring so much for another person that I wasn't thinking about myself at all. It reminded me of the message today on my turn to serve, just like Jesus. We're gonna be talking about a story that some of you know. As a matter of fact, three and a half years ago, we talked about this story in a little bit different way. And it's one that has just come to mind over the last eight or nine weeks that I've just been going back and revisiting. And I wanna share it with you again today in a much different way. 
We talked last week and the week before about developing our neighborhood, finding landmarks and intersections, our biblical worldview, our map. And this is one of the characters, one of the people who you see. I have neighbors sometimes, they're retired. Oftentimes they're out in their yard when we drive home down the alley. Many times they'll wave and you just kind of get used to seeing them at certain times of day, doing their stuff, sitting on their porch. And you know, if they're not there, you just kind of miss them. And, and that's how this guy is. Once you see him, you're gonna be looking for him or people like him, the pattern in his story, and, and you're gonna miss him if, if you forget to look or to think about it. This story is about a man named Naaman. And it's a story that's written to people or for people who don't know Jesus. It's written about a supporting cast of characters that all contribute to one man's salvation and none of them know what they're doing when they're doing it, at least the big picture. They just know what they need to do. They need to know when they need to do it, and they did, but they didn't know what was gonna happen. It's a story that was written using something called dramatic irony. Let's look at this together. Dramatic irony, the Lord guided this particular seeker every step of his journey. Now this is the cool truth about how God works. God is guiding all people toward a relationship with him. But many people don't know it. And there'll be a time in everyone's life, at least once, where they'll have ears to be able to hear, eyes to be able to see the gospel, and they'll be responsible to choose. But God is drawing all people toward himself. Now, you and I play parts in this, but we don't know what parts we play. We just do what we know we need to do when we need to do it, and God takes care of the big picture. So you're gonna see in here a cast of unlikely characters that contribute to an amazing decision to follow Christ or to follow God in this case. And um, he uses, God does, a Jewish servant girl. You'll see her in just a minute. The king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, and the king of Israel. An intern for Elisha, the prophet. You might remember, if you've studied the Old Testament, Elisha, the prophet. Elisha followed Elijah. It's easy to get confused between those two. But um, Elijah had an intern, Elisha, who became a prophet. A prophet was somebody who speaks for God because in the Old Testament, the scriptures weren't complete yet. And so God spoke through people for a time and for a specific purpose. And Elisha was the prophet for Israel right now at this particular time. And then finally, Naaman's own servants. Now, Naaman is the person who's the key to this story. It's the person the story is about. Naaman had three different flaws. And I'm gonna tell you about these flaws ahead of time so you'll see them in the story. Three things that Naaman thought that we know are incorrect, but he was doing his best trying to figure it out. He was on his journey to find God, but he had no idea that that's the journey he was on. First, he thought he could buy God's blessing. You'll see that in just a minute. Second, he thought that he would be healed when he received God's blessing by another person who was a sinner just like him with the same motives and the same instincts. Number three, he had his own expectations about how God would be working. God works in ways that surprise you and I. He works in ways that are unexpected, they're God ways. You and I, we do what we can, when we can, and God takes care of the big picture. 
So this story here, I think, will illustrate that, and we're going to pull out some points that we can apply to our lives. Now, Naaman, and actually, if you pronounce Naaman the correct way, it would be Naaman, Naaman, like a goat, Naaman, but we aren't going to do it like that because it's much too complicated, so we're just going to say Naaman, but Naaman is his name, now Naaman, now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram, Syria. He was a person who was accomplished. He was at the top of his game. The Bible tells us this. He was a great man in the sight of his master, who was the king, highly regarded. Now, in Hebrew, there's three words or three descriptions that are used for him. And in English, it really translates into one and a half words that are descriptions of him. But what this means is he was well-liked, he was respected, and he was successful. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He had been given victory in a battle that we don't read about here, but I want to tell you about. Israel was divided into two kingdoms by this time. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes. They were called Israel. The southern kingdom had two tribes. They were called Judah, and they were like brothers who fought each other. And they shouldn't have been fighting each other, but they were. And the problem is that um, they had turned from following the one true God, and they were following themselves. Now, the king who was king during the time of this battle that we are reading in the aftermath of, but not the actual, the actual plot uh, about or in. He was killed in battle, and his son had taken over as king, both of them dirtbags, both of them people who didn't serve God, who served themselves, both of them who couldn't be trusted. Israel was being led by corrupt, anti-God governments. And Naaman had just come back having conquered Israel, which means he killed the king, he destroyed all the soldiers, he had a military victory, he had come back and he was successful. But the interesting thing here is that the Bible tells us that it was because the Lord had given him victory. Now, I love this because you have people in your life, I hope, I trust, who you like and you also love who don't know Jesus. I do. And the only difference between me and between them is that I've been saved because I have faith and God has a lot of grace. Nothing in me deserves it. I'm not smart enough for it. I'm certainly not good enough for it. I have not earned it in any way. And if it was up to me to keep it, I would lose it by this afternoon. I am saved by God's grace because I have faith. Now, when I look at this, I see that God is working in my friends' lives behind the scenes, through people and circumstance to bring about a relationship with him. And it excites me, it encourages me because I know that if I'm available that God will allow me to play a role, but what's that role look like? And many times you and I elevate ourselves to the role of like, I'm gonna do this for the Lord. And in reality, a lot of times what we do seems very mundane, it seems very ordinary, but God works it all together for good. He was a valiant soldier but he had leprosy. Can you imagine going off? Massive military conquest. People serving you all the money that you could possibly want to spend. A field marshal, a four-star general, trusted by your king. Coming back from a military campaign and seeing a patch of white on your skin that forced you to come face to face with the reality that life, this life, our lives are gonna end one day and that we're out of control forces us to look up. We all like to have control, don't we? My sweet wife, Joy, is no different. Let me tell you about it. 
Last Sunday, we went down to Arkansas to visit my boys. And my son, Nathan, has a business that he has started doing really well, and he bought a, a big dump trailer, 5,000 pounds. We bought it up here. He needed it down there. And I said, sure, I'll haul it down there. And so um, Joy doesn't like the idea of hauling anything. She doesn't like the idea of ratchet straps and loads and things that can go wrong. And, you know, she, she has those kinds of, uh, of, of concerns. But the trailer um, behind, behind the, uh, the Sequoia that we were using to pull it, um, you know, she, she was all right. She was like, okay, we'll get it to Nate. He needs it. So we take off from, from Des Moines and we're heading south. And she looks at me and she says, um, how many miles per gallon are we getting? Now, there was a wind coming from the side and this trailer's 5,000 pounds. So I punched in the little computer and it said 9.7 miles per gallon. So that's, how, that's what we were getting. Who cares, right? You're bringing, hauling a trailer, we're on the road. And she said, we're gonna run out of gas. And she said, you, and she's telling me this, like she you know, understands gas mileage and where the gas stations are and all that stuff, because she does. And she said, you need to get gas every time we hit half a tank because if not, we're gonna run out. And I'm not sitting on the side of the road with this trailer in this car with you waiting for somebody to bring us gas. And I said, woman, I know what kind of gas mileage I have. I know where the gas stations are. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Now, I wish, I might invent. Anybody here wanna go into business with me? You know the, the dashboard that has, you know, when you're driving, you're looking at the speedometer and the gas gauge. You know on your cell phone, you can have a privacy screen where people can't see it from the side. I want those for your, for your speedometer and for your gas gauge where the person next to you can't see it from the side. Because Joy announced to me as we were heading south, she said, I'm gonna be drinking this trip. Now, oh, wow, you're going to be drinking. All right, it's going to be a fun trip for me. No, it's not that kind of drinking. That means I'm not going to get dehydrated because I'm traveling. I'm going to be drinking. That means we're going to stop a lot. Now, she's smart. I mean, she's thinking thoughts I don't think. She's, com I mean, complicated, complex. So we get to about Lakeview Casino heading south, and she's like, uh, what's, the, you know, what's the gas gauge? And I said, well, we're three-quarters of a tank. She's like, all right. She looks back, and she says, where are we? And I said, half a tank. She goes, I got to go to the bathroom. That's what she said. So I stopped go to the bathroom. She goes, you may as well fill up since we're here. <laughs> okay. I'm filling up, right? And then we start heading south again. And I see her trying not to show me, but looking over at the gas gauge, right? Looking over and it gets down to about half a tank. And she's like, whoop, got to go again. And I was like, you sorry sucker. I said, you're playing me, aren't you? She goes, I told you we were going to stop when it got to half a tank and we were going to get gas. She had figured out a way to control her environment. And I wasn't even smart enough to, to get in, in the way of that and figure out her master plan. Women are scary smart. But we all want to control our environment. And sometimes we realize we don't have any control. Naaman, for maybe the first time in his life, realized he had no control. He was in the passenger seat and he was a driver. And not only that, but he was running on empty. He had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram, Syria, had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. They took a, a slave. They, they captured a little girl, brought her back, and put her in custody where she was a servant in Naaman's household. She said to her mistress, to Naaman's wife, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Wow. We're going to talk about that in a second. But this is a girl who was captive, but compassionate, intervening in a situation where she could just as easily have turned her eye. 
Now, Naaman, we know how desperate he is because he cared not for the God of Israel. For him, it would have been the same as for you and I getting sick with something we couldn't cure and saying, you know, I've seen online that there's this witch doctor in Honduras who can mix some berries together and do some incantations and can heal me of my... I mean, it was that crazy for Naaman, but he was so desperate that he went to his king and he told him what this girl had said. Can you imagine how crazy that would have sounded? The king says, by all means, go. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. That was the way they did it back then. Now it may be an email or a text. Sending somebody to you, don't hurt him. This is what he wants. Letter of introduction, no big deal. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing, trying to buy favor with this God he didn't know. Now, if you want to know how much money that was by today's standards, it was about $1.1 million, a couple Armani suits, some classic Air Jordans. I mean, you get the picture, right? He's going loaded in a caravan or convoy, black Suburbans with tinted windows, a Wells Cargo or Wells Fargo, you know, uh, um, uh, armored car behind him carrying the money, armed guards, helicopters over top. I mean, he's going back to a place they just destroyed to see a king whose dad he had just killed. But he was desperate. So he went with his horses and chariots and he, and he stopped at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah didn't even see him himself. Elijah the prophet. Elijah stayed inside. See, we already had seen here in the, in the scriptures that the king of Israel, when Naaman showed up, thought there was some kind of political plot and freaked out and Elijah had heard about it and Elijah sent for him. And when Naaman got to Elijah's house, he expected some pomp and circumstance. He wanted a magic wand. He wanted some incantations. He wanted some preacher to be able to preach in a loud Southern accent and heal him or, you know, there was something he was looking for. And Elisha didn't want any attention on himself at all. He sent his intern out, just his intern, to meet this great man. And said, here, I have some instructions. Can you imagine Elisha sitting there in a lazy boy, watching CNN or Fox News, you choose, drinking an iced tea. Naaman comes to the door. Doesn't even get up and go out and see him. Sends his intern out. Wow. He says to his intern, to go tell him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now that was insulting to Naaman. For one reason, the Jordan River was a little muddy creek and it wasn't what he expected. He wasn't being treated in a way that was consistent with the person he thought he was. And Naaman went away angry. Now, there's six words in Hebrew for anger. And this word that's used here in Hebrew is the word that's reserved for God's wrath on humans when they really mess up. I mean, it's like level four, veins sticking out on the head, ready to smite and smote anger, shaking anger, destroying anger. I put my hope in a fairy tale and a witch doctor, and this is the way you treat me, Naaman? a field marshal, a servant of the king. I mean, he was fighting mad. He says, I thought he would surely come out to me and at least do something. Wave his hand over it. Hear me. 
aren't the Abana and the far, far better rivers than this river? They're cleaner for sure. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Boom. This man's pride just about killed him. And friends, our pride is just as dangerous in our lives. Our pride will kill. Our pride kills from the inside out, affecting those closest to us first, pretty soon separating and destroying everything in our lives, leaving us isolated and alone, believing the legends we create about ourselves, but everybody else knowing the truth. And this man's pride just about took his life. I'd rather die than be disrespected. So off he goes. And then we have another character pop up here. One of Naaman's servants. Can you imagine a servant getting in the way of Naaman who's storming armed to the teeth? A proven killer who can kill with words and also with actions. Coming to him, probably head down, submissive posture, calls him my father. He said, if the prophet had told you to do something cool, something big, something fitting of a man in your position, you would have done it. Wow, can you imagine that? Um, but he didn't. And he said, how much more then when he tells you to do something small, wash and be cleansed, why wouldn't you give it a shot? Well, here's a defining moment. A dramatic pause between verse 13 and verse 14. A decision that Naaman has to make. The same decision you and I have to make all the time. And he decided that he was going to go down and dip himself in the Jordan seven times. Now, I don't know how it went. We don't know. We don't see. But I think I would have left everybody back up over the hill and gone by myself. Because you're going to look stupid doing this, right? Why did Elisha say seven times? Well, I mean, he wanted to make sure that, that Naaman followed through with obedience because, after all, God expects obedience. And what comes on the other side of obedience, God surprises and blessing. Could you imagine being there? I'd be like, you guys stay here. You come over the hill and look, I'm gonna kill you, right? So he goes down to the river, dunks himself one time. How did he do it? I don't know, maybe bloop, right? Um, one time, stands up. I'd been having a conversation with myself. Rick, you're so dumb for believing this stuff. Can't believe you're doing this, but I would have done it again because after all, who knows? Bloop, right? Second time, third time. Can you imagine the tension as he dunked himself the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, knowing that on that last time that if, if it didn't work, that he was a fool, that God wasn't real. And more significantly to him in the immediate future, he was dead. So the seventh time, and after the seventh time, as the man of God had told him, his flesh was restored, he was healed, and he became clean, like that of a child. Wow. Then Naaman and all of his attendants, his whole entourage, went back to the man of God, Elisha, stood before him, and he said, now I know that there's no God except the one true God in Israel. So please accept this gift from your servant. $1.1 million, a bunch of classic Air Jordans, some Armani suits. Take this stuff. You deserve it. Elisha. No, as surely as the Lord lives, who I serve, I won't accept a thing. 
because you can't pay for God's blessing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Well, if you won't, please let me, your servant, be given some earth because I got to go back home. And when I worship, I want to be able to, to remember this minute here. And then he goes on and he says, now I'm going to have to go through some motions because my boss is going to be a little upset and I may have to go into a temple and I may have to act like I'm worshiping. So I'll just put one hand down instead of two. And Elisha's like, look, I get the fact that your faith is, is new. I get the fact that you're learning. He says, that's okay. Keep pursuing your relationship with the Lord. And he says, go in peace. So we see an amazing conversion of a man who descended into greatness from having everything he thought he wanted and then in one moment realizing that it was nothing that he needed and couldn't help him when he needed it most. And the people around him modeled and showed him what it was like to humble himself to find a relationship with God and to begin the real life that God had planned in the first place. So let's look at these characters. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Neither are my ways or your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Sometimes when you and I serve like Jesus, it involves serving somebody we don't even like. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal. And I want you to think about the servant girl, the one who made the invitation to name it in the first place, who said, perhaps you should go see Elisha, who represents the one true God. Maybe, you know, he will heal you. I mean, this was a girl who should have hated Naaman's guts. They were different religiously, politically, morally, after all, he'd gone and taken captives and slaves and ripped this girl from her home, all of her relationships, her hopes, her dreams, everything she had planned. The girl had every right to hate his guts. But she chose compassion. And sometimes when we serve, it involves serving people we don't even like. Now, for us, sometimes it's just um, people we decide to exclude out of our lives, people who used to be friends. You're not my friend anymore. You did something I don't like. I don't care. I'm not going to serve you anymore. For some people, it goes a little further, and we divide our family, even extended family, into relatives I like and relatives I don't like. And the relatives I don't like, I'm not going to have anything to do with. After all, God bless them. Hope somebody else can lead them to Jesus. I'm not going to. Maybe it's coworkers. Maybe it's competitors. But for a lot of us, it's actually groups of people. And Christians are the worst. Will you vote differently than I do? You're out. What? You look a little different than me? You dress a little different than me? You come from a different place than I do? You have a different value system? And we segregate and we divide and we label and we wedge and we ignore and pretty soon it's just a tiny little group of people who agree and all look the same and all think the same. And we talk about how we serve each other and how we love each other. And in reality, we're telling the rest of the world to go to hell. Sometimes involves 
serving people we don't even like. And you find that when you serve people you like or you don't like, that God changes our hearts and we begin to love like Jesus. This little girl was big. Can you imagine? Big, giant, I want to be like her. What did she do? What she could do? When? When she could do it. Did she have any idea what God was going to do with it? Uh Uh-uh, above her pay grade. She was just obedient. Number two, sometimes when we serve, and I'll go ahead and say all the time when we serve, it should involve serving with no strings attached. I don't want anything from you in return, period. Elisha demonstrated this by not even going out and meeting Naaman face to face. Naaman thought this would be the career-making moment for Elisha and his ministry, that he could become a TV preacher and write books about this time when he healed him. And Elisha said, no, the attention can't be on me. It's got to be on God. I'm not even going to get up from my recliner. Told his intern, go. No strings attached. What if we serve people and love people and never see anything come back? Well, it's above our pay grade. We serve because Jesus served. And we do it without bringing any known benefit to us. Number three, sometimes serving involves something that scares us a little bit, gets us out of our comfort zone, but yet it's right. Can you imagine the servant, Naaman's servant, when Naaman's off in a rage, I mean, he's ready to kill, just get in front of him. The sword's coming out, the head's coming off, and the servant says, I've got to do something. And he stands up, maybe with his head bowed, maybe just waiting for the death blow to come. And he says, you're my friend. If God had asked you to do something great, you'd have done it. But he didn't. He asked you to do something you thought was beneath you. What's the risk? Everyone needs a friend like that in their life. Way too many people are scared to say something. Sometimes serving involves something that humbles us and feels like it's beneath us. Naaman's descent from everything he wanted to everything he really needed looked a little weird to people if they were casual outside observers. Can you imagine the gossip circle? His friends? Oh, Naaman got the leprosy. Too bad. Oh, Naaman. He wants to go see some witch doctor in that area that we just took over. Oh, he's off. Can you believe how much money he's taken? Oh, there he goes. I mean, they would have been judging. They would have been laughing. They would have been, and here Naaman is taking steps that required him to swallow his pride and to meet God on his terms, saying, I'm nothing. You're everything. I need you. I was reminded of the passage that we talked about last week together in Ephesians 2.10, where the apostle Paul says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I was reading last night, uh, and there's a man named Frank Laubach, who's a Christian therapist and professor. And he talks about how hard it is for him to be others focused. He says, in every person we meet, we can find God. But the question is whether or not they've found God. 
And he said, when I'm really on my game, so to speak, when I'm really walking with God, when I'm really, you know, doing what I'm supposed to be doing, he said, I pray a prayer. He calls it the C-I-H-U prayer. And I'm not sure why it's a U instead of a Y. But he says, it's the can I help you prayer. And he said that when he's really doing what he's supposed to be doing, when he's really walking with God, asking for the eyes to see, the ears to hear opportunities, playing his part, doing what he can, when he can do it, letting God take care of the big picture, he looks at people, every person he meets, and he asks the question, how can I help you find the Lord? And he said, sometimes it's so small and insignificant. Sometimes it seems like stuff that you really wouldn't be doing, a little beneath you. Sometimes it's a little scary because it takes us out of our comfort zone. And then he says, sometimes you find that you're doing it for people who you don't even like and don't think deserve it. But he said, isn't it amazing how God uses people who are willing to serve this way and works behind the scenes, leading people to a saving relationship with him, changing people's lives forever like Naaman's, but changing us as well. Our hearts get a little softer. We become a little more approachable like Jesus, a little less judgmental, and we discover our purpose. This week on Wednesday evening, we're gonna be talking about our shape. Shape is spiritual gift, heart, ability, personality, and experience. It is a discussion on who we are in Christ how God has made us on purpose and for a purpose. And as you see the way God has created you and you discover your unique ability to serve, you can find yourself in the narrative of other people's lives in ways that will overwhelm and amaze you because you'll find yourself living the work that God has created in advance for you to do. Father, thank you for my friends.